What we found, though, is our stories are much more engaging because you're talking about these characters. And the characters, as Craig always says, are Batman, not Superman. So there's good and there's bad and there's nuance and there's texture to these characters. And that's what we try to bring. And, those, and that happens everywhere. But it certainly happens in places like Alabama Village. And when you're a really dark place, you see those brightest lights a lot more poignantly. What's up, dear friends? Welcome to the Let's Give a Damn podcast. I'm your host, Nick LaPara, and I'm thrilled that you're here with me, with us, today. My family and I have been self-isolating for 25 days or so at this point. As far as we know, our kids won't be going back to school this school year. To be honest, I'm enjoying most things right now, as odd as that may sound. Now, don't take me wrong. There is a tremendous amount of heaviness and sadness, and we don't know what's going to happen this day or this week or this month. We don't know when this is going to be over. But here's why I'm enjoying uh, things. I'm enjoying more time with my kids, and that doesn't mean that I still don't have moments where I'd like to ship them off to their grandparents' house. But we're having fun. We're doing things that we don't usually get to because I'm home more. You know, if I'm honest with you, I lost about 75% of my income when the coronavirus came in and shut everything down. Most of my income is in speaking and events for myself and for other people and organizations I manage. All of that went away overnight, so I've been having a blast trying to create new ideas and partnerships over the last few weeks. It's been fun, really. And I know that that might sound a little privileged um, because I have the ability to stay home and do this work from my back shed. But it's just true. That's where I'm at. And I don't expect all of you to be there. And it's not all roses. It's not all amazing. But I have been trying to, I've been trying to think positively. And I've been trying to just maintain a level head about where we're at, where things are, and trying to get into a mindset, realizing that this could be this way for a while trying to be okay with that and not moping and not walking around aimlessly, but rather creating and making shit happen. Enough about me. How are you? Really? How are you doing? I know that some of you are sad, angry, without work, without money, and so on. I could keep going down the list, and I don't take any of what you're going through lightly. I love you all. I wish the best for you, and please know that I'm praying for you. Here's what I believe. I believe humans are way stronger than we think. We are so fucking strong. When shit hits the fan, most humans, most of the time, throughout history, kick it into high gear. So I hope that you're doing okay right now, and I also hope that we are able to come out of this stronger than ever. You know those posts going around highlighting what people have created in isolation or when things are bad? You've seen them. You know, Shakespeare wrote some of his best plays when quarantined. Amazing companies and projects were birthed out of the 2008 financial collapse here in the United States. What I'm trying to say is, it's okay to not be okay right now. It's okay to not be hustling all the time. But I do wish this on you. I do wish you success and inspiration and motivation during this time to make meaningful shit, to give a damn in your own way. And if you're looking for something to do during this time that will help you become a better damn giver, this podcast episode, this conversation will help you. Today, you'll get to hear two of my friends' 
Earl Bridges and Craig Martin share their story. They're amazing dudes and the hosts of the brand new show, The Good Road. And when I say brand new, I mean brand new. If you're listening to this on Tuesday, the 7th of April, when it comes out, it'll be airing in Indianapolis tonight on PBS, and it'll continue to release in markets all over the country, all over the place over the next few days and weeks. You can find all of that info and more at thegoodroad.tv, and we will have that link and more in the show notes. I'm purposefully not telling you much about the show because we're going to get into that in the conversation. I had a blast talking with these damn giving fellows. Uh, Quick note, though, regarding our conversation, we couldn't find a quiet spot to record when they were in town recently, so we ducked into the corner of a hallway at Opryland Hotel here in Nashville where they were staying. So you'll hear some weird noises. Here's some weird stuff. Hang in there. It's a good conversation, especially since we each drank three or four very overpriced beers during our chat. Let's jump right in, shall we? Here's my conversation with the hosts of the Good Road docuseries, Earl Bridges and Craig Martin. Let's go. Okay, let's get going. Earl Bridges, Craig Martin, man. welcome to the Let's Give a Damn podcast. Are you kidding? What a pleasure. Thanks, yeah. man. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much for being here. So we are in Nashville at Opryland, a place that I would never come <laughs> on my own. Right. You know, were it not for meeting you guys. Up with us. Yeah, meeting up with you guys for a beer and a podcast because this place is nuts. What I love about Opryland is it's like they fixed God's creation. <laughs> it's all it's a rest all that it inside. could have been, but just yeah, reimagined. Yeah, it's something here. Uh, there is more plant life in this building than there right. is in Nashville outside yeah. of this building. So, no, it's it's a, it's a bizarre thing. We're here for the national religious <clears throat> national NRB national religious broadcasters. I was told yesterday that uh, I'm the bad boy of NRB. I don't know exactly what that means, but well, let me describe for everybody what what we're looking at here. There's a whole lot of white people. Um, it was more dresses than I've seen in a long time. A lot more skirts. <laughs> right. And um, the bars are empty. The bars are empty, and uh, yeah, it's it's. It, and you have you have you have red, tennis ver- like shoes. very red Sneakers. tennis shoes, and you've got the one earring thing going on, you know. So, and you have a lot of brace. Whatever, you're the bad boy. It is this is the Southern Baptist missionary kid that went wrong? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. It's very much that. Uh, whenever you do want to say something, maybe just go back and forth yep. so it catches okay. a little more. Um, okay, let's get going. So we, we have a lot to talk about. Uh, you guys are the hosts of a uh, forthcoming TV show. You guys have a podcast as well. And you guys give uh, a lot of dams. We're going to get to that point first. Mm-hmm. You guys have known each other for a really long time. Uh, so start. why don't you start, Earl? Yeah, Tell so me where you came from. Backstory back is, uh, so I moved to Bangkok, Thailand when I was nine years old. Dad was an Air Force pilot. So that was Vietnam era. We were there when Saigon fell in 75. But Craig and I both went to the same school, the International School of Bangkok. And really, that's where our paths crossed. Yeah, and so I was born and raised in Bangkok. My parents were Southern Baptist missionaries, as we referenced. Um, graduated from high school and, uh, you know, in 1984. Um, and yeah. you're old, bro. I'm old. No, you're not old. Ibrahim Puch Pasat, Thai doing, huh? Yeah, we, we speak Thai. <laughs> so, t- so you said you were you were born there? Yeah, I or was no? Born you were born the, there, and you were you born there, or no? You no, I was born your... on an Air Force base in South Georgia. So okay. it's always hard when people say where are you from, and that's where I have to say that's where I'm from. But <laughs> from there to Philippines to California to Thailand, and a lot of time there. 
Yeah, I was, I, I was born in a Seventh-day Adventist hospital, and since I wasn't born on a base or something, my parents actually had to apply for citizenship for me. Oh, okay. So, yeah. so I, uh, one of 12 kids, um, I was born in New York, but raised in Guatemala from nine to, you know, when I got out of high school. So I always tell people, because I came from, not like New York City, I came from a little state or a little city in that wonderful state that um, a lot of weird things happened in that state, in that city. And so I don't, I don't usually tell people that I'm from Rochester, New York. Right. Um, so, but I do tell people that I'm from Guatemala. So you're good. You're good to tell people whatever you want. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you guys knew each other. When did you guys meet? Well, we probably met, you know, back in the day, but we really got to be close kind of in the high school years when we were both in Thailand and we were spending a lot of time on the bench in the uh, basketball season. So we both played basketball. Uh, I'm five. I would like to say 5'10", but I played center a lot of my years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so... so You're a little it, taller. I'm a little Craig. taller. International School of Bangkok. But my joke is that you get, get to know somebody on the bench. And I would always be like, oh, Earl, that's so cool. That's really cool. Oh, I think we just scored again. Oh, all right. I you mean, weren't we, even, we weren't the uh, coach put us in right now. Come you were on. fine being on the bench. <laughs> now, we're, you guys are in your... 50s now, right? Not is yet. That, no, not yet. Whatever, dude. I hate this. This is the worst line of questioning already. What is this? A police line? No, no, up no. And all of a sudden, I have to explain how, where were you back how in old 1965? Are you? 54. 54. But you guys look great. Yeah, I, we say 54 because we're cool. You're 54. <laughs> and around ish there? 53. So you guys have been known each other for, the, I didn't want to point out your age, even though you guys are super young and you have so Decades. much life ahead of you. I was, you guys have known each other for like 40 yeah. years, yeah, over right. 40 years. How are you still friends after all this time? Like, what, what, what is bringing you guys together 45, you know, years later? Well, I, I hate to give a shout out to uh, social media, but really, Facebook is how we kind of stay connected. Okay. And we had not seen each other since we graduated. We graduated different years from the International School of Bangkok. Um, and then I actually got laid off from the organization my parents worked for. I was a communications director there. And when I got laid off, Earl was like the first person, hey, man, I got this company. I want you to go film with uh, me and a, and a friend of ours who we grew up with, uh, Patty. And he said, can you, can you be on a plane going to Myanmar and Nepal and Vietnam? Of course, my world, that was like, oh, my God, that's so awesome. Of yeah. course. Yeah. So that's how we reconnected, really. Yeah, you were like, hell, yeah, I want to go to these places. Well, and that's the thing. I mean, I got all the benefits of his 80-plus countries that he filmed in. So I travel around, and everyone thinks that I've been to 80-plus countries. But no, I just hang out with one guy that has. And by proxy, I'm super cool. But we always wanted to do you know, some kind of visual storytelling about people doing good all over. And uh, there wasn't a better person to do it, especially somebody that you knew pretty well you know, early on. So, yeah, we hooked up. We came up with this crazy idea on some van on the way to Gurkha, Nepal uh, for like 8, 12 hours or something like that. And next thing you know, here we are. I, I will say, and you'll get this, um, because you as a third culture kid mm -hmm. haven't had that experience, but when you grow up the way we grew up you know, overseas and everything, um, we were early on really good friends. And then we were not together for, you know, a couple decades or whatever. Sure. And then we just jumped right back in. Yeah. And Earl truly is my best friend. I mean, he is the guy we... I love you, man. <laughs> I love you, man. So he's my best friend. And so we, we... But again, we just picked up right kind of where we left off. Yeah. Growing up, you know, in, in similar you know, places, knowing the things you had to go through to learn a language, learn a culture, mm -hmm. like there, you, you really connect with those people and resonate you don't forget right. that shit you yeah know? and actually the thing about you know growing up both those missionary kids so dad was first air force and then when he got out of the air force after you know his retirement 
uh, I was a missionary kid as well. So, I mean, there's that bond, even though he was Southern Baptist and he probably won't be in, in heaven, but, uh, but we still feel that connection, you know, yeah, as a Church yeah. of Christ kid as well. It's different than when you, you know how you meet someone in like some other country, it's another American, and you're like, oh my God, I'm also from America. Where are you from? Well, I'm from Kansas. Well, I'm from Texas. And we never would be friends otherwise. Yep. When you have a shared, you know, background of, you know, being in Thailand for such a long time, coming from that same type of environment, I think that's one of the things that solidifies a long-time relationship. Well, and there's a part of, uh, of life that was j we just started with, which is a sense of belonging. I, don't, I, I didn't ever really know where I was, quote, from. Sure. Uh, because, yeah. you know, when I, when I first went to school at Baylor, um, you had to kind of put on your beanie. You had to write on your beanie where you were from. And I put where my parents were from, which was Louisiana. And, and I had only spent, like, over the years, like, three years total in Louisiana and everybody's coming up to me. Oh, I'm from, you know, I'm from Port Mary. Where are you from? I'm like, uh, I have no idea anything yeah. really about Louisiana. So it's hard to figure out your identity through that. Are there any, do you regret anything about growing up as a third culture kid growing up overseas or was it, is it all pros? All I would recommend I wouldn't it to say anyone. It's all pros. And I, again, I'm one of five kids as well. And I would say half of my siblings wanted to, came back and wanted to continue traveling and then a couple of them really wanted to just stay put and not have to introduce who the heck they are you know on that so i think there's you know that but i was in 11 schools you know from you know kindergarten through yeah. you know my senior year i guess so that. you know it you bounce around and that's that for me was an opportunity because i was not a great kid in a lot of those schools so every one was a rebirth that you was got a lot of second chances it was a lot of second chances I would say that, you know, back to the identity thing, I really, really wanted to project on my, my twins. I have twin 16-year-olds, and we live in Richmond, Virginia. Yep. And they are very, very Virginian. They, they were born in one of the most famous hospitals in Richmond. They've always spent their lives there. And although we've had them travel a lot, they have a different identity than me. And I, I've, I've learned early on, i got to stop projecting my... Sure, sure. The, I loved the way I grew up. I absolutely loved it. But I don't want to project that on them because they're not growing up that way. So, I can see that so vividly, what you two just shared in my own family. Because uh, most of my siblings were born in New York. Because uh, we went there when I was nine. So there was, you know, I was the second oldest, about six or seven more that were born before we moved over. And then three or four of them were born in Guatemala. And I can see so vividly, I can see so clearly, some of my siblings, we are adventurers. Anytime there's a plane ticket to buy and a place to go to, I don't ask questions. I was in Indonesia a couple of years ago, and the, the most freeing feeling was when, you know, we're all of us are grouped together, and we're like, okay, we'll meet here later to go to this thing, right? And as soon as they went upstairs, you know, it was like kind of the rule, unspoken rule was like, don't go out on your own. As soon as they went in the elevator, I was out the door and like just went exploring, and I felt, I've never felt more free in my life. And then I have some siblings who are such homebodies, like it, it did something to them. And that's not necessarily bad, but it did, yeah, it made them never want to leave the, you know, they want to stay home every night. They want to do the same things, routine. And I don't like routine. I want to do, I can't wait till somebody says, here's the next place we're going or for me to figure out where the next place I'm going so I can go and, right. and do I, it. I've categorized it as there are travelers and non-travelers. And it doesn't matter what business you're in on television and film, there's a lot of people who are forced to travel but hate traveling. And then there are people like Earl and I are like, exactly. I mean, we, we got off the plane <laughs> in Uganda early on in, our, in the TV show production. And uh, Earl and this other guy, Jeff, they, they knock on my door. We've flown a gazillion hours. Yeah. And it's like three in the morning. 
they're like, hey, we hear kind of a, a, a bar down here that's got some music going. We hear on. noise. You want to go down and grab a beer? We're like, um, yeah, let's do it. I'm like, everybody else on the crew is like sleeping. Sleeping. <laughs> yep. Yep. I don't understand that. So, yeah, we have uh, a lot in common. I think that's why I resonate with you all so much. Um, so you're in Richmond, Virginia. Yep. And you're in Charleston, South Carolina. Charleston. Do you like where you live? Do you do you do you have any plans of moving, or is that kind of good home base for you both as you do all of your global travels? So, and I know Earl says the same thing about his city. I love Richmond. Okay. And we're always kind of quasi competing about which is better. He's from Charleston, so of course he thinks it's the best. Yeah. So does everyone else. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty beautiful. I wouldn't put it in the best category, but it's pretty pretty damn beautiful. But we're up and coming. Come on. I've never been to Richmond. I don't even you know. Come. Have you been to Charleston? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> of course. And I've been have. to D.C., but I haven't been outside, you know, around right. the, yeah. the D.C. area. So You know what makes it work? I love Charleston, but and it's on the coast, and there's a lot of nice things about it. But um, for this line of work, when we're traveling quite a bit, if you don't have some kind of support anchor somewhere that is comfortable where they're at, it's a great place for my wife and my daughter to grow up. And that, them being happy and close, is really the only way that this stuff works at all. Yeah, I would say the same thing. And, uh, you know, one of the things about both Richmond and Charleston is you do, they're, they're, um, they're uh, little big cities, uh, meaning sure. that they actually have a lot of opportunity. You know, you can go to the symphony. We, we, my wife and I go to the ballet all the time. It's excellent. Um, but, you know, I literally can get to most places in Richmond in 20 minutes. There's not much traffic, things like that. So you get the access without all the headaches of a really large city. I'll tell you, for season two for The Good Road, we're going to do a couple more domestic stories, and one of which we're going to do is in Charleston, one in Richmond, one in Austin. But you're going to start seeing Charleston and Richmond in a very different light than what you see. Because it's not hard to look from afar at Richmond and say, okay, it's just a line of Confederate statues, you know, all the way down Monument Avenue or Charleston where you feel like you kind of know it from the outside. There's a lot that happens in both cities that's super cool, and I think that's where we spend more of our time. Yeah, there's a, there is, a I would say, a commonality between Charleston and Richmond in that they're often pegged as slave cities and cities of racism and all that stuff. Um, but they're actually, like, the, the, the cities we live in, Earl and I in our cities, are progressive. People are cool. We go to some cool clubs and whatever it is. It's just a very different life, and people don't, people from maybe, not I'm not even gonna say where, but people who aren't from that part of the South think something, they have a different narrative for both of us. And that being said, you live in Nashville, brother. I know. I mean, this is the bachelorette capital of the world. That's yeah. why I wanna leave. <laughs> No, that's it, what I'm saying from the outside. I mean, you look at Nashville. We went to some honky tonks. We took some Dutch uh, film producers with us, and they wanted to see what real Nashville is like. So they wanted to go down, you know, Broadway. Yeah, it's not real Nashville. That's no. real no, that's real nowhere. No, you know? small percentage of Nashvilleians yeah. actually do that shit. Right. You know? Well, it's funny because they, but they. So we went to this place called the what's what's it called? Roberts. No, not Roberts. The first place, oh. Wild something. Wild Coyote or no, anyway. So we went in East Nashville? Crying, crying, crying Wolf. Crying Wolf. Yeah, yeah. Crying kind wolf. of a dive bar, like cool yeah. hipster dive bar. So we yeah. went in there and there was there weren't that many people there. No. We were explaining to the the Dutch guys, we're like, that's because it's, you know, a Wednesday night uh, on or Tuesday night on the middle of the week and the people who come here are local Nashville you know, Nashville. Yeah. 
And so they're not going to do the tourist thing. They're going to go there, but they're going to do it when they're not. Yeah, Thursday, doing, Friday, Saturday night. Yeah. You know, working night or whatever. And then you go to Robertson, it's almost all tourists, you know. Yeah. But but that's kind of what the Dutch guys wanted to see. Yeah. Actually, the better place, again, shout out to Nashville, the American Legion that night. That was that was the most kind of bizarre Tuesday night, American Legion, and whatever that area was that we were all East at. East Nashville, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. That was yeah. wild. It was super hipster, but then there were, like, old people, and yeah. everybody was mingling and dancing, and yeah. it was a and really fun be, environment. And that's got to be 90% Nashvilleian. I mean, it's got to yeah. be largely locals, but yeah. it's a subsection of this city that you never really see. I think, I think I'm missing what you all have found in Richmond and Charleston, uh-huh. you know, because we, we've moved so much as a family. Oh, I've moved my whole, you know, I, I did 10 years in Guatemala. Then I did six years living voluntarily homeless all over the world. And then when I settled down, you know, got married, it was Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, Minneapolis, Minnesota, Tacoma, Washington, and now here in the last 11 years. And you, that's not enough time to find like real roots, right? I'm tearing them up just as they're really getting into the soil. Yeah. And I don't know why that is. We're actually trying to really figure out, like, we want to find home. It's not like we're trying to avoid finding home. We just don't know where we belong. I mean, half the days we want to leave the U.S. and never come back. And the other half, we're just like, I don't know where we want to. I think most, uh, and you'll understand this from years ago when your kids were younger, but with our our young kids, we're like, where do we want them to grow up? It, It matters somewhat because you can find great kids anywhere, suburbs, city. Like, it doesn't determine everything, but it does determine some things where you grow up suburb you know downtown on the outskirts you know if it's a if it's a multicultural multiracial neighborhood or if it's all white like that does determine some things you know here's the here here's the litmus test or here's kind of the here's the test where would you live if you didn't have to live in richmond there you go if i didn't have to live in richmond bangkok probably (laughs) Uh, oh in the states you know it's hard to say i probably it would definitely be I might live in Charleston, actually. <laughs> I think New York City, man. I love oh, New York City. Oh, yeah. Well, so, so the pro- the only problem with New York is, and this is this. Okay, quick story. So we were. There are no quick stories with Craig. <laughs> I know. You'll, Keep, I go. Think this we got no little, time frame. We'll put a little, uh, you know, header on this thing. So, uh, me and a guy named Carlos Chafin, who uh, runs all the audio supervision and uh, audio work on our show, The Good Road, and a guy named Mark Lambert, who's a VR um, guy who made his uh, big name in Hollywood working on uh, running animation teams for um, you know, companies that were doing things like Harry Potter films and stuff. So the three of us are sitting in this little coffee shop near the studio where we're gonna go do some work. And um, this woman walks in and she's overhearing us and she says, we, she's, I said to her, I thought we were, I kind of ran her off because we were sat down with our coffee and she got up to leave. and. She goes, I said, well, sorry to run you off. She goes, no, I was eavesdropping. She goes, I'm actually from New York, and, uh, and I uh, work in the business in L.A., but my mom is ill, so I had to move to Richmond. And she said, and, you know, quite frankly, there's nothing going on in TV and film in, in Richmond. And, I, and the three of us looked at each other laughing because it's a community there that's tight. We all know each other, and they're doing things like at, at, in your studios where we work, they're doing things like Homeland. They're, I mean, uh, audio post on Homeland things. I mean, they're big, big projects. But you know, from a New York, LA perspective, so as as much as I'd want to live in New York, um, I would just be one of, you know, three hundred thousand TV film professionals that. Were yeah, and in Richmond, city. you're one of a few. Yeah. Yeah. No, there is that there. I think I'm. I'm. That's where we want to move. Like our 
The one city we really, really, really want to live in here in the U.S. is New York City for a hundred obvious reasons. I think it's the best place to raise kids. Mm -hmm. You're going to raise kids that like know, they know their shit. Like they're aware of what's going on. Mm -hmm. They know how to deal with different kinds of people and different kinds of situations. And they're just, they're, they're living in the, the epicenter of, of all people and cultures and languages, right? So that's the, but there is that reality of whatever you're trying to do, you just minim, you just lessened your chance of it actually becoming a success in a place like that. Because right. there are 1,000 people within a stone's throw of you trying to do that Super same thing. Super talented, too. Yeah, With right. the same connections. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, for me, it's New York City. If, if, if it's in the States, yep. there's a lot of places outside the U.S. I, I, I will would... say, and no disparagement, but I do have the East Coast, West Coast thing. If I lived in either L.A. or New York, it would definitely be New York. <laughs> yes. There's, yeah. I'm, so you're, whenever you've lived back here, it was on the East Coast? It, not really. We okay. actually, you know, I, I came back to Louisiana mostly. Um, but I think what I, the, New York is the closest thing to Bangkok in my world because, sure. um, you know, Bangkok, whatever, 10 million, 12 million, Huge. whatever now, uh, it's, you're just surrounded. And people think, oh, it's only Thai people. That's not true. And of course, I love the Thai people. We love uh, hanging out with Thais. But you also, I mean, we had Europeans, we had, it's, it's very right. similar to New York in that way. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so let's talk about what you're doing. It's a lot, right? Oh so let's start with the let's start with the we'll do podcasts in a minute. Let's start with the TV show. How does one decide they want to do a TV show? And then let's talk through how fucking hard it's been to make yeah, said man, TV show. You know, yeah. Right. So I had a software company, so it's that old joke of how do you make a small fortune in television and you don't do it on PBS and <laughs> but you start with a large fortune and you just watch it piss away. Yeah. And that's basically so you know, we used to have a lot of money, now we got a television show that's coming out in April. And, um, but, but I mean, again, my gig was basically, I was working with really large corporations trying to figure out how do you get them to give more because at the more they give, the more we were actually making on this platform. And so visual storytelling was one of those things. And I, I knew that Craig was all over the world telling great stories in, you know, the post tsunami and, and, you know, conflict zones and Syria and places like that. And I said, well, let's like open that up. So when we did this trip out to Gurkha, Nepal, which is really far away from Kathmandu, you're an amazing place and you're hearing these great stories. It's like, why is this guy's story not being told of survival in this area amidst this beautiful backdrop of the Himalayan mountains in a really just amazing place? Why is it that I know more about some guy that knows how to make a bacon cheeseburger at some dive bar or wherever? You know, why is the celebrity chef's that? So that's kind of, it. we formulated that. And then Craig and I went to Uganda and we did a project out there. We came back with a really badass sizzle tape. We, we uh, took that trailer around and we started getting some really heavy, strong bites on this concept of the show. And again, you'll see it if you look at you know, our site, you'll see it, it looks kind of raw, edgy, you know, bump people, you know, WME, there was a talent agency at WME that said, yeah, it reminds me of Bourdain. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, Bourdain had balls because we're going places where they're yeah. shooting and killing and stuff like right. that. It's the upside down bucket list. It's yeah. that part that you don't ever want to be. Yeah, in. I love that. So it was kind of, that's how the good road started. We started talking about it, calling it good all over, but there's an aversion to storytelling, which is, feels like it's agenda driven or charity driven. And so we had to change the name from good all over to the good road to make it lean more into kind of a travel show. I will say that I love the Bourdain story because it is funny. Uh, the reality is that Bourdain, it, you know, God rest his soul, uh, was a kind of a mentor, if you will, or a path, you know, uh, what do you call it, the, 
a frontiers. Yeah, he pioneered this he new pioneered, way of doing guru. television. He was our yeah. guru. Yeah. And so when Earl said, because I was watching a lot of Bourdain back when he talked about it, he said, I want to do a Bourdain style show, uh, but about people who do good in the world. And those that combination of that, I was like immediately in. I'm like, I love that idea. Because he's kind of set the, the trend of not just going and like all the different interesting foods. In fact, the food was kind of secondary in a lot of ways. He's talking about culture, yeah. learning who these people really are. Uh, and, you know, food is a big part of that, obviously, in every culture. So yeah. I feel like he, he grew into that. I think, like, you know, when he was younger and doing shows earlier on, it was all about the food. You know, yeah. he was known as a chef. As he evolved, even up to the moment of his, of his death, like, he, he became, like, a real true storyteller. And he, he did so. Um, I actually didn't think that he was a great, he was a better listener than he was a talker. He didn't yeah. talk all that much. And when he no. did, you're like, that wasn't that smart what you said. But he was so good at just like listening and seeing what was going on around him mm -hmm. and, and then piecing things together that way. You know, right. he yeah. wasn't just like talking all the time, rattling stuff off. He was the one just taking it in. Yeah. And that's I mean, so that's a lesson, right? You just shut up and let, it, let the smart people talk, you know, with their own anecdotes and you know, whatever. I mean, he did good on the VO. He always had a, in his last, you know, sections, he always started off with a one minute kind of overview, but yep. that was VO that was scripted, right? Yep, right? The rest of it was really in that side of it. We try to let, you know, it's hard for just to talk about the optics of this. Yeah, please. Um, I don't know if people know, but both Craig and I are white and uh, we travel a lot in the global South, go back yep. to Southeast Asia, we'll go to Africa and things like that. So it's easy for people to step back and say, well, what are these, you know, it's white savior complex. What are you guys trying to do type thing? So we have to, you know, let the locals really give their voice. And we look for those characters because we're only a conduit. And I think that's, Ordain, I think, understood that as well. You know, it's their story, not his story. So even though you're drawn to it because of him, it's really the local stories. Well, and the, so the LA agent, Liesl Coughlin from WME, told us when, after we got heavy in the conversation, uh, we said, you know, we've, we've had some people in the TV business who said that uh, you really need like a celebrity. And she's like, hell no, 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 no. It has to be you guys. It has to be you guys. You, you're going to have to overcome the thing that you're, you know, older white guys. But it has to be you. And the fact is that um, you have, this is authentic. This is real. We grew up. Earl built a business around, uh, you know, giving uh, through charitable giving. I built a, you know, my career around a nonprofit and working for him. Yeah, this, so, is, this is important yeah. that you all are actual lifelong in various stages of different ways you guys are lifelong damn givers this is not a shtick that you were like oh tv is going this direction let's do that yeah 80 use 80 something countries yeah how many countries for you probably a lot right oh, a lot I don't yeah know. Never right counted. earl speaks five languages i mean these are the yeah, things yeah so this is you there's like glo global and and multicultural and wanting to embrace that and show that to the people that's not this is not a shtick that you picked up because it was now the sexy way to do tv right this is you and, and Earl, uh, I would also add uh, from Earl's perspective or background is that, you know, he knows Brazil. He knows Portugal. He lived in Portugal. So I was kind of a little Thailand centric, you know, uh, but then experienced in my career, all these other places. Yeah. Earl has lived all over the world. Yeah. So he has a little bit of identity in all these different places, which is cool. But the key, I mean, you know, again, talking about giving a damn, you give a damn when you listen, you know, and you have that empathy yeah. and 
you know, we're at this backdrop of something that I feel like is very artificial, this, you know, environment where a lot of people feel like they already know the answers. And if you don't know their answer, then they're happy to tell you about, you know, their Jesus or their salvation or whatever it is. Yep. Um, for me, it's always been, it's always been hazy and difficult and, you know, interesting. And you find out more about the world as you start really trying to let people, you know, talk about what their experiences are. And so that empathy, I see, you know, again, back in Bourdain or any good storytellers, I think that curiosity is something that we've been able to maintain. And, um, and that's one of the things that I like about Craig. It's not we're walking in and we feel like we know what that story is. It makes this show super hard because we walk into a place knowing kind of who we want to talk to and almost all the good shit that comes out of our show is not stuff that we scripted or thought that we knew. Yeah. All of it is stuff that we just... We see something crazy. Craig says, stop the van. We jump out and we grab it. And, that, and that's what you see that's really compelling. So, you know... Being sensitive, being open to the change, I think that's storytelling. A lot of storytelling and uh, has, has showed us today that being, you want to be the guide, not the hero, right? The people viewing, yes. the people listening, receiving exactly. are the hero. You're the guide showing yeah. them where to go, right? Did you guys ever struggle with that, like not knowing, maybe not take, like fully recognizing that you were the guide and not the hero or was it, or did you always, because of growing up in this, you kind of recognize your place? I think we understood what the importance was. Uh, we actually worked with, uh, we talked with a production company, uh, Joke and Biagio, and they, and they made a really good point early on where they said, Joke said, she was like, you know, I mean, you got to make sure that you're taking, you're, you're bringing the audience along and they're discovering it with you. So one of it is you have to be open to discovery. And two is you got to figure out a way to make that, you know, visual transition so that the viewer feels like they saw it the first time, just like you did. So that's a lot of what our story is. It's like, all right, grab the cameras. Let's go see what's up over in this area. And um, so we, I think, have gotten better. I know I've gotten a lot better on the interviewing side. Yeah. I tend it to already think I know what you were going to say and talk sure. over you, just like you just did right now. And uh, <laughs> yeah, no, but it's uh, so there's a lot that you kind of learn on that, but it's still an art. And, and we do. We are a counterbalance. And I think part of the, the fact that, you know, I, I'm still very much connected to my faith. Earl's, you know, discovering that path or thinking about that. But we have different perspectives on things like faith and stuff. Um, he's he tends to be kind of witty and snarky with things. I'm a big crybaby, you know, I'm always like crying when the, somebody tells me this horrible story. I think at-, at You're a good team. I think at, you know, I was about to say at the end of the day, everybody always says that, but at the end of the day, um, <laughs> the fact is that we have discovered stories like our Alabama village was very near and dear to us. Mm. Um, we have discovered things like, actually, there's some redemption and validation in the lives of drug dealers. Like these are kids who are worth something, you know? And when you get that kind of perspective, we got one time on a, this old guy in a truck pulls up, he's like, what y'all doing? We're like, uh, we're filming a TV show and we're uh, doing it about Alabama Village. And he's like, I'll tell you what the problem is. You just get rid of all the drugs in there and everything's gonna be a lot better. It's like, you know, not the uh, generational poverty, not the, the fact that they, they, a lot of the kids don't even uh, have birth certificates because they were born in a house that doesn't have electricity or running water. You know, no, it couldn't be any of those things. It's only the drugs, and that's because they're bad people. You know, we hate that, the, the narrative that um, people think. And it's hard to make a travel show when you're taking people to places like Alabama Village. So, I mean, again, commercially, when we later talk yeah. about this, yeah. <clears throat> it would be much easier to go to exactly the places and have the hotel set you up, and, you know, and you're just extolling the virtues of making people want to go. 
What we found though is our stories are much more engaging because you're talking about these characters. And the characters, as Craig always says, are Batman, not Superman. So there's good and there's bad and there's nuance and there's texture to these characters. And that's what we try to bring. And, those, and that happens everywhere. But it certainly happens in places like Alabama Village. And when you're in a really dark place, you see those brightest lights a lot more poignantly. I mean, it's just like, I like to say, that's why you see stars only at night, because you need that contrast. And that's really what makes you fall in love with the stars, you know? So your show comes out uh, April... April 6th. April 6th. Yeah, April 6th, it'll drop uh, nationwide on all your PBS stations. So it's one of those check your local listings. Yeah, and we'll link to all of that. I'll link to the trailer, definitely. Tell me about like tell me about season one, though. I know we're, we're going to hopefully see season two, three, four, five, and six. But like for one, what are we yeah, looking so, for? Where do you go? What kind of stories are you collecting? So most of our, because of our connections, we know people all around the world. We know people who work for World Bank and all that stuff. So we were heavy into international. So it's uh, Uganda, Kenya, uh, Tanzania, Thailand, of course, Myanmar. Um, and then we have this one domestic show, um, which is uh, Alabama Village. I like to say we film all over the world in parts of Alabama. <laughs> Very compelling pitch. I don't think most TV professionals, if they said, we've got everywhere in the U.S. to look at. Would you, let's go to Alabama Village. That seems like it makes sense. No, but seriously, it's one of our favorite stories. And um, so the next season, though, we're going to lean in, as we referenced earlier, a little more domestic as well, because I think it's important. Um, you know, part of the whole idea that, well, these are people over there that do such amazing work, and someday I could be like that and do that. No, you can start tomorrow in your backyard. Um, and, you know, that's important. And that's kind of the format, too. So, yes, it's the location, but also it is generally people that are doing good. So sometimes they work for nonprofits or charities. Sometimes they're worth social impact companies. Sometimes they're worth, you know, technology companies that are just enabling, you know, all of the global South to have access to the Internet, which is going to democratize education and the rest of it. And so we're just looking for those people that are actually, that give a damn. Yeah. I mean, honestly, it's just like that. Yeah. It's just like, yep. who is it in this area that's doing something that's not only putting their backs into it, they're putting their hearts into it, and they've got a story to tell. And it very much pivots on character. So every episode, you'll kind of see a place, and then you'll see a couple people, and then you'll see what it is that they're doing. And because it's only a half-hour show, you only really get introduced to it a little bit. But I think every story, you're just like, well, what the hell happened to Jesse? Or where's Eric now? Or what are the Brick guys doing? Or what's that biggest elephant Tim doing? So that's kind of the format. And, and the part that we love is, uh, and, and the part that's kind of, uh, I love about the give a damn part of it is that so it's not what you think necessarily of who the people are that are doing these things mm. um, you know you might run across an atheist couple like we did in Uganda who are both from the UK from London they could be crushing it back in the UK but they've decided to work at this regional hospital in a remote part of Uganda that's and, and they love it um, so and, and you know it ranges of course they're faith-based people too um, that's the world I came from so but not just Christian faith I mean, we get, yeah. it's, it's every faith. That was one of our favorite characters is this uh, kid, Jojo, and he has a punk rock band called Rebel Riot. And they made a, a German company made a film about him uh, called Buddha is my, uh, or Punk is my Buddha. <laughs> I think that's so great. That's it. Well, he's in the show. Yeah, he's in the what, what, which episode? Yeah, that will be Yangon. Yeah, but I'm trying to think. Is that the last? Like, oh, sorry. I always forget that part. Uh, Yangon, Myanmar. And, okay. And so this is the most one of the most military oppressive governments in the in the world and here's this punk rocker out and he, he i love telling this quick thing where he says um his um his comment is 
Uh, you know, I always criticize the government. We always sing about how bad the government is. They don't help the poor people. They don't help the people on the street. And they, we criticize, criticize. And one day I said, but I don't criticize myself. So he started mm. working with Food Not Bombs and Books Not Bombs. And he like literally, they don't have any money. But they figure out a way to scrape together money to take food to the street kids, to educate, do education on the street. I mean, that's like how beautiful is that story? That was one of the, I think, a pivotal moment for me years ago. And I, I try to, st I stress it all the time in different ways on the podcast is, you know, I am a, I am a Christian, uh, unashamedly. You know, it's taken various forms over the years. And, and it's for me, it's constantly evolving and I'm, you know, figuring shit out. But I come from a Christian worldview. But there are so many great, not even good people, great people out there of a vast array of different kinds of faith or no faith at all. Right. Or, or, or I guess it is, a, it is a faith, but no like particular, they, they have no deity that they're worshiping or whatever, like atheist or agnostic. But like it's all kinds of people. Yeah. I grew up being like not just spoon fed, shovel fed this bullshit that like Christians are the only ones out there, you know, as missionaries and doing stuff and rescuing people. And it's like, it's just not true. I, I travel around and see so many good, great people doing so many good things, and they're serving and and you know adhering to this faith and that faith and that faith. Yeah. And just see, you know, I, I have this renewed like love for global, like all people, because of that. I wish that I, w I wish we didn't have the the label Christian, because again, we say it one thing as if it's homogenous across all people. I told Craig today, I don't think I've ever met a Christian. Not because I haven't met a person that's following Christ. It's, I don't know what that label means because it's not applied. I've met a lot of people. I've met people that follow Christ, you know, and, and people that are call themselves Christians that don't follow Christ. Yeah, right. You know, so it's like I've never met a millennial. I met a bunch of people that are in that age group. So, you know, I don't know how you get away from it, but there's a lot of baggage that comes from whatever I thought a Christian would be. Here in this environment, people will say, are you a believer? I don't know. What do you mean by a believer? You know, do you believe in God? Well, what's your, what's that term? What are you, what are we talking about the same things when you say that? Well, the, this is one of the reasons that I know, uh, I, I feel certain Earl's the same way, but I was very proud to be an executive producer on Free Burma Rangers because Dave, not just because we know him and he's a friend and all that stuff, but because his perspective is so um, counter narrative in terms of you know, he is he is the most, uh, quote, Christian guy you'll ever meet. In fact, uh, when whenever I'm with him, we, we were filmed some for the TV show with him uh, for for later uh, in season two stuff. But he's he'll he'll just stop right there and start praying. You know, he just I mean, you, you can't criticize him for his theology, but he also has on his team, um, you know, Muslims, atheists, uh, Buddhists. And he's not, he, he shares his faith all the time. Sure. But he's not like, you have to believe this. Like, if you're going to be part of what we're doing, we really need for you to accept the Lord uh, as your, you know, Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. He's not that way. Yeah. And, and I think that resonates with, and I think the film with a lot of my friends who aren't necessarily people of faith or, or people of Christian faith, that resonated with them. They're like, yeah, okay, he, I get his perspective. It's, it's interesting. Um, I don't believe that, but... Wow, he, his main thing is love and love your enemy like that. Now that's the gospel right there. Love your enemy? Are you kidding me? So let's take a break from the good road for a second. Talk about Free Burma Rangers. That's why you guys are. Well, it's part of the reason why you're here in Nashville right, right now. Yep. There was a two two. It was in the theaters for two nights in hundreds of theaters across the country. Yep. Called uh, Free Burma Rangers. Yeah. So it was 800 theaters, and it's a story about a nonprofit organization called the same name 
that were based out of uh, the northern Thailand border. And what they did in the early part was these kids that this guy, Dave Eubank, that grew up as a, as a Baptist missionary up in that area, uh, his dad said that there's a lot of stuff happening in Burma and they need some people to go and help. And basically it was the Burmese, the National Burmese Army, oppressing some of the ethnic you know, minorities, the Kachin and the Karen and other tribes. So they saw that and they just, and he felt like his role was to go in and document this, what was being perceived as a genocide or was a genocide uh, and help as much as they can. So his story starts from something that doesn't sound so surprising till he takes his wife, they have their kids, they're growing up, they're going through the jungles, they're, you know, you know, fighting all this stuff. And they're at the, they're where the gunshot, they go to where the gunshots are and they literally are right there with the gunshots. So you saw the film. Yeah, so we, we were sitting in the theater the other night, uh, just two nights ago, mm -hmm. and there were moments, I mean, I had, I had, whoever's listening, do you know where it's going to come out on? Like, it's going to be on... So, we were very fortunate for the film to be released in theaters through Fathom. It was events. amazing, yeah. I want to plug Fathom because yep. they do an amazing job for producers who can't necessarily get, like, a two-week run. Um, so, it was in theaters. I'm hoping they might re-release it. Uh, but if not, there will be streaming opportunities. It'll be on Amazon yeah. or something. Yeah, there will where be other yeah. opportunities. So, whenever it's out, I will make sure to tell you all where to find it. You have got... No matter what your faith background yeah. is or what you believe... This is a film everyone has to see. I, I experienced every range of emotion. I mean, I, there were times when I was clenching my fists. Yep. There were times when I was like crying. I was, you know, I would smile. I would like scowl. I'd be so angry at what was going on. It's really incredible. It, it, is it Karen? His wife, Karen? Yeah, yeah Karen, Dave yep. and Karen Eubank are doing in, right. in Burma, Myanmar, yep. in Syria, in Iraq. The kids, yeah. these kids, I mean, are just, they're young kids, like literally within earshot, of, not earshot, within physical proximity to mortars bombs going off isis yeah isis is literally a few hundred feet away yeah. and these kids are loving on you know iraqi kids that are trying to not die yeah, that Shahali, day the the older daughter she's filming a lot of this well you have to be within film shot right you have to so she's filming and there's bombs falling and you know and they're in the home phase and these little girls at the time little girls are driving these ambulances out or humvees out with you know wounded people on there and their kid Pete, I mean, it's like, this is just the yeah, most Yeah, these kids are badasses. Family. And you walk out of that theater and you say, you know, I, I, I got onto you. But I mean, it's like, yeah, so may I, I may have had a vasectomy a couple days ago, but that's nothing compared to what goes on to these guys, you know? Yes, well, so, I did have a vasectomy three days ago. <laughs> thanks I'm for fully sharing recovered. that on your podcast. No, I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> no, the kids no more, are amazing. No more Lepara kids. Dave says, like, you know, the idea of, like, little Peter, who's, well, he's not little, but he's 14 or something. He knows how to throw a grenade. He knows how to empty a clip in a combatant if he has to. So, I mean, the idea of that is just so crazy. And I, I had a moment in that film, I'll be honest, and I think I mentioned it to you or, one, or maybe both of you that night, when, and, and I, I don't know, if I was in his position, I might feel more like him. Like, I'm a hippy-dippy pacifist, like, anti-war, anti-death penalty, like all those things. I don't own a gun, never will. That's how, that's my worldview. Like I have been, I have been uh, yelled at by other fathers, friends of mine, when I've told them, they've said, well, you got to defend your house. I'm like, I don't care about my life that much. Like this life is short anyway. I'm not going to kill someone to prevent them from killing me. That's my, that's my thing. Yeah, right? no, they get a lot of criticism that because they are bringing, again, really young kids to the battle lines that happen. But what he said in the movie that also is very you know, telling to that is 
they were working with a nonprofit that had food to distribute and their security procedures wouldn't allow them to get close enough yeah. to actually distribute it. Well, who is going to do that when their responsibility stops and the, the need is down the road? Yep. That last mile of service is where we find the most interesting people and that's where they live. And if you're going to be where the guns are you know, shooting, you can't really blame them for trying to protect themselves, but who else is going to do it were they not there? I, I think it's really important right now to say it's not machine gun preacher. No criticism no. there, but just it's not. Well, I, um, I have a criticism, there, but I understand. And, and there were there were two points uh, in the film yep. where Dave says, you know, I just want to go kill them all. Yeah. And he's really, really ready to do that. Um, but his story is a story of redemption. And he's like, I'm not, I'm not, it's not my responsibility to kill them. Yeah, that was the moment he said he yeah. went back and like read the yeah. vengeance his mind says Say the, the Lord, Lord. Yeah. right? And it, like his whole heart and life changed, like, right? That's the gospel. Yeah, it is. It really is. Is like these people deserve to I mean, they deserve to not live for a second longer. They're hurting these women and children. They don't care who they're killing and who they're hurting. They don't deserve to live. The reality is, you know, we're all in that boat in some way, shape or form. And he had a transformational moment in the film. That was the moment I was like, "Oh, is this dude going to really like is this going to be his new like worldview are we going to see him kill other people for the rest of the film i was worried honestly and then when he sat down in the bed and was like vengeance is mine i was like okay that's real like that's real shit going on spending time with dave and his family um i will tell you they're as authentic as you get on that so again when you really know them everything really resonates it hypes it up you know what the story you even know what the ending is going to be but the way you get those pivotal moments where you're like they're grappling with what i should do and they can go either way I think that's all of our lives, right? I think the problem in a lot of times in American theological, Christian theological, uh, you know, structures is that a passage like "Love Your Enemy" um, doesn't really mean a lot, really. And when you see a guy like Dave, who has just watched a family that was just he was loving on, and they were having a great time, and they were uh, going to be free from ISIS, and then they get in a tractor and literally 300 yards away get blown up and all killed. And that's when he's the most angry in the film. Insane, yeah. And then when you see a guy like Dave say, I can forgive them and I love them, Mm. the people who did this, dude, that's intense. We have no excuse for anything that's coming our way, right? Like that's what what it does is like anything that's coming your way here in the U.S. or elsewhere, you can can forgive them. You can leave vengeance to the higher powers and just take whatever comes, you know? That's why this let's give a damn. I'm like, yeah, it's great to be on it. I kind of feel like I care. Then you see people like that, and I'm like, I'm so far away from where I need to be, you know, that really go out there and, you know, put it out there, so. Yeah, yeah, no. Like, I, I've, I've also said the same thing about me because I've had other times in life where I was way more in it. Right now, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming the role of a storyteller, and you all are as well. That's fine because the, there are so many people that don't have the experiences that we have that are sitting at home doing way less than we are. And they need storytellers, people that can bridge the gap, people that do know what it's like to live in the global south and elsewhere, people that do have these multicultural background to then take those stories, bring them into their homes on TV, on PBS, podcast or whatever. Well, it's really important to remember, and this is for all of our audiences, that yes, I mean, I had so many friends sending me notes saying, I feel ashamed, I feel, I mean, I'm doing nothing and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, you don't need to feel that way at all. What no. you need to do is love your neighbor. Yeah. Like actually care about the Muslim person in full burqa in, 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 your, in your life that you run across. And if that uh, person is in full burqa and they're 
pro wearing full burqa don't go around saying like, oh, it's such a shame. They're like, it's just so, so bad that they have to dress this way. Guess what? You know what? Mormons uh, wear headdresses and stuff all the time. So there's this, you know, I think this idea that you can personally in your life, in your world, not, not be mean to people and love people and treat them like yourself. Like it all starts at home. It all starts right where, if you're thinking about, you know, anybody watching that movie or watching your forthcoming TV show or any of the podcasts that we do, if, if the result of that conversation, that dialogue, whether it's on a TV screen or in our ears, if that causes us to feel shame, that wasn't the goal, I don't think. No, I don't the think. The goal is start in your immediate vicinity. If you now feel like you want to go to Burma, right, and join the Free Burma Rangers, but you don't know your neighbors, like the neighbor you've lived next to for five fucking years, you don't know their name, start there. If you've never been down the Asian aisle in your grocery store, start there. Yeah. Wherever it's easy for you. you There's so many things. And then when you tackle those small things, you know, we'll see what life throws at you. But don't you dare think, well, now I've got to go over there to Iraq and like help these, you know, help the Iraqi military like Dave and Karen did and the kids. No, 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 that's not your place. Like they spent decades leading up to that point, right? Start with loving your neighbor. And, and by the way, a critical part of actually loving your neighbor or loving the person that you might not think is awesome uh, is to actually see them as your equal. Like, like yeah. no, I'm, I'm not loving that person because I'm just being a really great Christian, you know, because that's what God called me. To. No, you're loving them because you actually think that they have something to teach you, that they have value, like they're my equal. Um, and yeah, they don't do things the way I do them, or maybe they don't believe the way I believe, but I can still say, yeah, you're my equal and I love you. Um, that's hard to do. It really is hard to do. Yeah, super hard. Uh, TV show, podcast. Is podcast. it Philanthropology. You nailed it, brother. So many people stumble on that. But, but, but I've known about it for like Guatemala. three years. Yeah, go. that's right. I've, <laughs> I've, I've been in the conversation, so I, I, and I love the name. Tell people, it might be obvious to some, but, yeah. but what's, why the name and what happens in this podcast? Is it well, a supplement to the TV show? Is it like it? Very different? Tell yeah, us about no, it. Yeah, no. Well, first of all, you come up with the name over a beer somewhere, and that's where you like, what, what are we doing? Three beers and in, I and Philanthropology exactly, comes right. out. Yeah, and so, um, yeah, and actually the funny thing, my nephew said, yeah, that's my, my mom's favorite store. I think, no, that's anthropology. Yeah. <laughs> not the same, not the same. But um, so the idea is that how do you like expand out on some of these stories and how do you let people tell their stories? Because quite frankly, on the PBS stations, you can't use some of the language that some of the people do. So it, it provides us an opportunity to explore their backstories a little bit more. We'd go into what are the motivations because, again, we sit back and say, why in the hell do you do this? Who does this? What's going on? What can you learn from it? You know, that's very much the philanthropology kind of mantra. But it is a companion piece to the show. We highlighted a lot of the same characters that you'll see in the show. So if you got engaged on the show, then you get to hear them in their own voices. And we give them a lot more latitude to explain what it is that's going on. I mean, you can't, in a, in a national television show that is meant to be, you know, they call it edutainment, like you're going to learn something, but you're also going to have fun sure. along the way. You can't get heavy into the white savior complex. I mean, it's just not possible in that, in that st format of show, a travel show. So it allows us to explore topics that are kind of subtext in a lot of our shows, but we can actually dig in with some experts and people who are, uh, you know, really whatever part of the field they come from and get into things that we love talking about. 
And a dirty little secret is it actually helps us to vet people before we fly all the way to Uganda to find out they have no perspective. They, you know, they're just boring as hell and they're not TV ready. Right. You know, so again, that's, it's another area for us to really explore. But <clears throat> I would say, again, if people have good stories, I love them. If we can't stick it into the, the episodes themselves on the television show, tell us your stories. Shit, we'd love to hear those stories. Yeah. And we'll kind of put those into philanthropology or some of the other areas. Philanthropology is out now. It's out now. We've been doing, you know, we'd go bi-weekly, so every two weeks. Uh, so we're into our fifth episode, so it's, it's nascent. We're trying to build up, you know, enough of these stories so that when the, the uh, television show actually drops, you're like, oh, what, what else is going on? You can actually see some of these people. But uh, we'll do that, you know, and continue on. We've got great sponsors sponsors on the, the uh, podcast. The, the thing I would say is, like, the most recent one that, that just dropped last Tuesday that Earl really kind of developed and came, you know, pulled together. We were calling it an anti-poaching, but then we started realizing, and Earl started realizing that a lot of the conversation was not just about poaching. It was about animals and kind of the rights of animals, but also the perspective of, you know, this guy, Philip Glass, not the musician, uh, but he has a, uh, you know, a farm or a ranch basically where you can go shoot big game. So like not just big game, exotic big game. <laughs> yeah. So what do you do with that? I mean, it's an interesting thing, and like you know, we delve in the we we're in that gray in that gray middle always. It's that messy middle, and that's where we stay. Philanthropology is very much those stories. So what's the and we'll link to all this in the show notes. What yep. is what's the dream? Where do you go from here? I mean, you hope the show takes off and it leads to season two and three and four and yep. five and other things, spinoffs, whatever. Right. But like, if, if you could have it your way, what does the dream look like? Well, I think, you know, what we do want it to sustain. I mean, this gets to the, also the really hard part of, you don't have any money, you have no mission, and it doesn't matter, right? So we're trying to cobble together enough to go forward on season two. We already have season two kind of locked up, and we actually uh, feel like we have a good idea of where we're gonna go in season two, but we want season three and season four. Now, we can incorporate better voices, just like Bourdain did. All of a sudden, he starts traveling with a bunch of other sure. cool people. Because yep. you meet people along the way. I mean, hell, Nick, you should go with us on a, you know, it would be fun. Dude, yeah, you, and your perspective and what you see, it would be, you're the kind of person that we would love to have on the show. We find people like that all the time. So we just want to go far enough, long enough, where we get to meet all the hell, the cool people that we've never met before. Well, and I would say for me, just personally, the idea of taking... Uh, a device that has not been successful at all, which is telling stories about philanthropy and people who do philanthropy, because it's always agenda-driven. Making it a mass media market uh, product that actually gives voice to some amazing people and kind of changes. You know, I always joke that uh, Bono uh, did the whole, uh, you know, Charlie Manson, you know, took the word health of skeleton. <laughs> we're taking it back. You know, we're we're taking back the idea that um, I you love know, it media about people who do good in the world shouldn't be boring it should be super compelling i should actually want to go to a film like free Burma rangers watch it and then tell all my friends you have to see this film and you know maybe not instead of but in addition to the joker and the new star wars exactly. thing it's like i oh, want to see we free love Burma those. Rangers. every one of those totally. that is it i feel like you know this uh this it's trending you know this messy complex you know nuanced characters are trending that's a reality so all of a sudden i don't know it's not right or left it's we're right in that middle and all of a sudden we're creating this third party in media that can blend a lot of the popular stuff with a lot of the good you know and earl you mentioned you know trying to cobble enough you know money and resources together for a season two people probably think that all tv shows you know if you book a tv show they throw piles of money at you yeah now Public television is not like that. No. You get to, you know, you own the show, right? You didn't we give that away, show, yeah. but you have to pay for it. We they're just the they're just the vehicle to get it out. 
Right. But you have to pay for it. So like, yeah. what is that? What, what, the business what that model real like? quick is basically we have 60 seconds of advertising that we can sell on our show. And then we have to make the show with whatever we can make out of those 60 seconds. So you either start with a bunch of money and then you pour it in the show like we did. But going downstream, you got to figure out who are those brands or, you know, other partners that will actually want to associate their, you know, reputations with these really good, you know, reputations on that. So public television is hard. You got to go and raise your own money, get your own funding, and then trig- figure out how to do it, you know, in a way that you can actually sustain it. And, and by the way, it isn't advertising because they don't let you do all the things that you would do in an ad. You can't know product placement. You can't have calls to action. So you have to have a company like one of our sponsors, AMD, who says, no, what we want, we know what you're trying to do. And we love your brand and we want to align our brand as a tech company with the brand of doing good in the world. So that's kind of their ethos. So that's, those are the people we're after. Yeah, here's my, here's my point. If you want to go down the PBS route, you get to own the creative. You have a lot more heavy influence on what you're going to do. And like you say, we own the IP. You figure out who you want to associate with and how you want to distribute it. If you go down the other route and you go a big broadcast, then they own it. You know, and then all of a sudden, if we're not pretty enough or young enough or whatever, they switch us out. If it doesn't do, perform well, they, you know, cut us. So, you know, again, they have all the cards. I think that's the area. The reason why we're doing this is because these are stories that we want to tell. We want to tell the stories that we want to tell. And so for that, this format is perfect. And it's also the hardest damn thing we've ever done. Yeah. But it hasn't scared you away. Uh, we're so not far yet. in now, brother. That's yeah. just like quicksand, you know. So, so you're talking to mostly, let's see, 90% in the U.S., 10% global. Um, you're, you're talking to mostly people that have that have probably lived here in the United States all their life, all their lives. Right. Uh, they're whatever. They're in school. They've got jobs. They've got kids, and so they don't understand much of the life that we've described here today. Yeah. And they might think uh, it's sexy. It's amazing. Wish I could have grown up that way. My upbringing was boring. Yada yada yada. Talk to them for a second and give, maybe it's a couple from each or whatever comes out, uh, give some wisdom for anybody that is saying, well, you know, it makes sense that you all are doing that because you had this upbringing, but I want to do something similar, but I don't know if I'm, I don't know if I'm qualified enough to do it. Give some general advice to reluctant damn givers about what to do today. Maybe it's something small, something big, but what, if they're feeling something like maybe, you know, we, we have a lot of guests on the show that hit, hit things from many different angles. Maybe there's some potential TV producers or directors or hosts or whatever that are listening or podcast, you know, uh, creators that want to do something, but maybe don't feel qualified. Should they go tell those stories? Should they leave it to somebody else? Like what's going on? I start, I I would say ease into it, start small, and you could do a lot more than you think you can do. Honestly, you're going to see it. You're going to sit back on your couch and you're going to say to your wife, you know, would you ever do that? You know, and, and, and uh, yeah, hell, I'd do that. When we sell my company, I'm going to go do that. You don't have to wait till you do that. You know, you do it today. So whatever that means, if it's uh, sticking around for the Spanish service so that you actually meet other people in your congregation, well, hell, you could do that almost anywhere. Yeah. You know, it's like I said, go to the Asian market and experience, you know, that. And then in that, support the people that are doing good. But you can do good everywhere. Just don't be a dick. Yeah. You know, just, you know, that's just be nice, go- that's, just that's be nice to somebody, yeah. you know, yeah. just don't cut someone off or, or don't flip them off if they happen to cut you off. Cause you don't know what's going on on their no. side or whatever. You know, there's a lot of little things that you can do. And then you'll find yourselves like us sucked into trying to make a damn television show with no money. Yeah. <laughs> I, I would add that, you know, the political realities and the cultural re- realities of today are that 
we're so divided. Every, the, the news loves that. We're so divided. Um, they make money on us. They make lots. money on everybody divided. I would say um, that we're all very similar. We all have the same things. We get up in the morning. We worry about our kids. We worry about the fact that, uh, you know, we got to pay the mortgage or whatever. Um, let's, let's just come together. Let's decide that we are actually going to help our neighbor. Let's help. And we can do it together, by the way. I don't care if you're a Trump Republican or a left-wing liberal. We can come together and do some solve some things. We can actually solve problems in the world that are massive and have been chronic for generations. We can do that, by the way, through things like technology. We have, the, we have more ability now to do these things than we've ever had. And if we just kind of come together, I think it's, it can get done. Take a couple pennies, stick it in to help fund these kind of storytelling podcasts like Let's Give a Damn. And, uh, and then if you can't do it, you can certainly do that. Yeah, I mean, in particular, those, that's great advice, uh, particularly on the note of like if there's any aspiring like storytellers, man, we've got these amazing, you know, all three of us have our phones right in front of us, these amazing, you know, 12, you know, megapixel, right, camera phones. Like if you want to tell a story, don't think that's five, seven years down the road when you get into film school and you can get this nice, whatever, whatever the 5D Mark 47 is at that point, you can film these stories. You have an amazing device. If you want to tell your, if you know your neighbor and they're, you know, a refugee, an immigrant, a Muslim, or they're just a white neighbor that has a beautiful story to tell, set your camera up, ask, tell a, that, few, ask a few good questions. Tell that story. Tag us and we'll follow you. Yeah. Do do the little stuff. I mean, and it's we, so we, we, You inspire us as well. These it's so things, simple. Yeah. These little things can inspire a lot of things, and it is. It goes back to the old church song. It only takes a spark, right? But but I do believe. <laughs> but that. it's true. It's true. It's that's. I don't know about you all. But that's the only reason I do what I'm doing is, and, and, and it has happened many, many times over the last two and a half years of doing this podcast, and now let's give a damn growing, is the messages that I will get, they didn't resonate with the first 120 episodes, but 121, it got them. It got them. We're 132 episodes in. Like, it might take 100 for them to feel something, but then they did, and it changed everything for them. I get these DMs, I get these texts, I get these emails, and I know you will too, as your podcast grows and as your TV show grows, you'll get it where like maybe four episodes will go by, nothing, 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 oh, that was cool, and then five rolls around and boom, hits them in the fucking face, and they're like, life's, like it's changed. I can't go, I can't unsee, I can't unfeel that, you know? So it's a beautiful thing, you just gotta I, keep I would, going. I would say that, you know, on my deathbed, we always talk about our deathbed, but even for my, my son or my daughter, uh, that generation and stuff, I don't think there, anybody's going to get to the end of life and go, I'm so happy that I built that amazing 401k. No. I mean, they're not. No. They're not going to say that. They're going to say, uh, I love my family. I knew this person that inspired me. I had a teacher back in the second grade who changed my life. They're going to say these things. They're not going to talk about all the other stuff because guess what? It in, at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. No, it doesn't. Speaking of deathbeds, let's wrap up with this question. I end pretty much every conversation with this question. Uh, hypothetical scenario, many, many years down the road. We'll start with you, Craig. Uh, you, uh, again, hopefully it's 50s. Maybe if Elon, Elon Musk figures his shit out and like helps us live a lot longer, we're talking 50, 60 years down the road, 70, 80, I don't know. Whatever, Methuselah was 969. Come on, let's go. <laughs> let's get back to that. Whatever, whatever, whatever they were drinking, uh, I'll, take, I'll take two of those. But you're, you're gone, you die, and for some odd reason, they've chosen me to eulogize you. So all of your friends and family are there, and I get to stand up front and honor and mourn uh, and celebrate your life and your legacy. 
what am I saying? What do you hope that I say on that day about your life and legacy? I mean, I would say, I'm going to get teary eyed here, but I'd say exactly. I would want you to say the same thing that I will say at my dad's funeral. Um, my dad loved people genuinely. He cared about them. He made them feel special. He changed a lot of lives through the, just the work he did. And if I could go, if I could have you eulogize me and say those same things about me, I would feel proud. I mean, I, there are parts of my life I, I'm not proud of. I don't, I don't think I'm a good or great person. But that part, I mean, I, I truly, I have so many friends who I, I genuinely deeply love. And if I could, you know, be, be told, uh, somebody could tell my eulogy, I would want them to say that. I love it. Same question for you, Earl. Gosh, these are hard questions, man. I'm glad it's the last one. Um, you know, <laughs> I'll come up with two extra ones just because you said I that. I think no, that kidding. it's, uh, for me, you know, people are going to know me as evil and they're going to know me as good and they're going to know everything in between. All I want them to walk away from or all I want my contribution to be is for someone to say, you know what, I, I understood people more. I was more empathetic. I listened more. That's it. Take from it whatever you decide. But he showed me some stuff that I wouldn't have seen otherwise. I love that. So I've been thinking a lot about, I've been thinking about a lot about life and how we guard our reputations and what people think of us so dearly. We're always trying to put the better photo on Instagram or whatever. I'm thinking particularly about Russell Brand. Um, here's a guy who has fucked up publicly all his life. I mean, the 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 relationships and the drugs and the everything. And now, over the last few years, he's gotten kind of this renewed like. He's on the right path and he's clean and he has this amazing podcast where he's genuinely like a really smart, wise, thoughtful guy. And, and good looking. So good looking. <laughs> I'm very attracted to him. That is not a lie. The beautiful people, the beautiful people. But are people going to remember? Like people try so hard to protect their image, right? You said this. I, people are remember me as evil and good. We're all like, what's the point? Here's what I'm getting. I've been talking about this with my wife a lot. What's the point of trying to hide everything and trying to make it so clean? When people appreciate the process, you look at Justin Bieber, here's another guy who's lived his life publicly since he was, you know, I'm picking famous people because it's everybody can share that experience, right? We've seen Justin Bieber for a decade, right? Piss in buckets and like do stupid things, uh, you know, sleep with a prostitute and wherever it was in Brazil and like leave his monkey overseas, like all these crazy things, right? What are they talking about now? Like he's clean, he's like shaping up, he's like has this relationship with Jesus, whatever you make of that, People appreciate the journey because they feel more comfortable with sharing their shit and just being real throughout their journey, right? I think that's super important. I mean, I, I, I just like... It's hard to do, man. It's hard. Shall I sin so that grace may abound? Shall I live a bad life so that later on I have a redemption story at the end of it? So, um, but I'll tell you, one of the things I just struggle with today, right now as I'm sitting here, is how I'm going to talk to my investors about what this thing looks like and what the financial you know, components are of it. And it's messy to get here, and it's not as pretty. And it'll be great later on. Sure. But that sharing a really hard journey that takes you through really deep bouts of depression and things that you're really thinking hard about, I, it's hard. I, I, I don't know that I'm brave enough. You know, some people are, and I'm sure I am. I would just add that you look at, like we said earlier, one of our uh, mentor gurus, just we never knew him. But, Tony, yeah. Yeah. And I think about the fact that, you know, here's a guy that is idolized by a lot of younger um, documentarians, 
uh, younger uh, people who want to make good media. He's like, he is, he's the man, like Bourdain arrived. And then there was something so unhappy in his life that he took his own life. I mean, that just, that rips you apart. So everybody's got stuff going on. Yeah. And it doesn't matter how pretty you are or how cool you are. Uh, everybody's got stuff. I, I mean, I, I celebrate the people that can do it. It's brave. And if you're brave enough to do it, maybe that's the only thing you can. Maybe you don't travel around the world. Maybe you don't do a television show. But if you're brave enough to share your soul, I mean, there's a lot of value to people you have no idea. Yeah, yeah. Craig, Earl, I like you guys a lot. This was super fun. Nick. Thanks for doing what you do. And uh, we'll do a round two when uh, the podcast... Or dude, the, while, when the, when the while show, we're on some crazy journey go. in the middle of Tanzania yeah. or whatever, dude, I'm in. come on the road. I'm in. I'm in. Let's do it. And we don't just like you. We love you, Nick. I like you. I love you, too. I love you, too. With the Thanks love so of the much. Lord. Thanks Cheers, so man. <laughs> Thanks. You had to end on with the love of the Lord. Thank you. There you have it, friends. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. And make sure to check out thegoodroad.tv right now to see when their show will be available in your area. I've seen some of the show. It's fantastic. Make sure to follow the show online at The Good Road TV on Twitter and Facebook and at The Good Road on Instagram. Please sign up for their weekly newsletter on their website. It's very informative. They'll let you know when different uh, podcast episodes are out. They also have a podcast. You'll hear more about that in the show. And here's a cool tidbit of information. I'm on their podcast this week. It actually releases today on the 7th of April. So if you want to hear uh, great stories, not just mine, but many others that they're releasing, please go look up the Philanthropology podcast with Earl Bridges and Craig Martin. I will also have those links in the show notes, but I'm on this week's episode. So you get to hear some of my shit on their platform. So go check it out. Again, all of the links and stuff will be in the show notes. As always, you can find Let's Give a Damn on all the socials at Let's Give a Damn. You can find me on all the socials at Nick Lapara. Please hit me up at hello at letsgiveadam.com if you need anything at all, if you have any ideas or thoughts you want to share with me, or if you have any ideas for how you and I can partner together. I definitely want to hear those. This show was created by Chad Snavely and me. The music is by our friend Propaganda. We are part of the Matter Media family, and we're grateful for their partnership. Please share this episode with people you like and with people you don't like. Just make sure to share it. It takes just a few seconds to send it to someone right now. When I say right now, I mean right now because it definitely only takes a few seconds, but it helps us out a ton. Also, if you have a few extra seconds, please leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much. Friends, I can't wait to spend time with you next week. Sending lots of love and light to each one of you. Keep giving a damn. Peace. Peace.